We're looking at all of Zechariah chapter 8 this morning, but I'll be reading verses 1 through 8 and 12 through 19. Hear now the word of the Lord. And the word of the Lord of hosts came, saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I am jealous for Zion with great jealousy, and I am jealous for her with great wrath. Thus says the Lord, I have returned to Zion and will dwell in the midst of Jerusalem. And Jerusalem shall be called the faithful city, the mountain of the Lord of hosts, the holy mountain. Thus says the Lord of hosts, old men and old women shall again sit in the streets of Jerusalem, each with staff in hand because of great age. And the streets of the city shall be full of boys and girls playing in its streets. Thus says the Lord of hosts, if it is marvelous in the sight of the remnant of this people in those days... Should it also be marvelous in my sight, declares the Lord of hosts. Thus says the Lord of hosts, Behold, I will save my people from the east country and from the west country, and I will bring them to dwell in the midst of Jerusalem, and they shall be my people, and I will be their God in faithfulness and in righteousness. And verse 12, For there shall be a sowing of peace. The vine shall give its fruit, and the ground shall give its produce, and the heavens shall give their due, and I will cause the remnant of this people to possess all these things. And as you have been a byword of cursing among the nations, O house of Judah and house of Israel, so will I save you, and you shall be a blessing. Fear not, but let your hands be strong. For thus says the Lord of hosts, as I proposed to bring disaster to you when your fathers provoked me to wrath, and I did not relent, says the Lord of hosts. So again have I proposed in these days to bring good to Jerusalem and to the house of Judah. Fear not. These are the things that you shall do. Speak the truth to one another. Render in your gates judgments that are true and make for peace. Do not devise evil in your hearts against one another and love no false oath. For all these things I hate, declares the Lord. And the word of the Lord of hosts came to me saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the fast of the fourth month, and the fast of the fifth month, and the fast of the seventh month, and the fast of the tenth shall be to the house of Judah seasons of joy and gladness and cheerful feasts. Therefore, love, truth, and peace. This is the word of the Lord. You know, it used to be that uh, superhero movies and stories and TV shows were all about the origin of the hero, how they came to be a hero, bitten by a radioactive spider, you know, fell from the heavens, had a lot of money and exercise. How did they become a hero? But now what's more common in my observation are villain origin stories. How did the villain become evil? What, what inspired them? What's their backstory? Are they the victim of a, a society that's falling apart? Did they have some great personal tragedy? Is there some national spirit and, and issue at, at hand that created this villain? It's perhaps an oversimplification of, of how people work and what motivates us, but I think it makes an important point that much of our lives are lived in response to factors outside of us. We, we live in response to the things that are going on in our world, in our lives, in our families, in our homes. Uh, something in our nation, something in our history, our personal life happens and it's significant and we react. We react in the way we, we think about things from there on out. We react in, in what we are determined to do from there on out. We react in, in how we feel from there on out. Something else leads the way and shapes the, the response of our life. 
We begin our worship with a call to worship because so many of us, all of us, I would suggest, have spent much of our time letting other things lead the way. We're reacting and responding to other things, and as we gather on Sunday morning, we are reminded of what is to lead the way. What is it that we're supposed to be reacting and responding to? It is the goodness of God. God has interrupted every other narrative, every other story in our life whether we're responding to an abusive past, an impoverished upbringing, a national inspiration, something that we've been responding to, God has interrupted that narrative and demands that everything about us respond. The goodness of God now goes before us and leads the way, and He expects us to follow. Zechariah is writing to a nation of God's people still in recovery, from exile, from seeing Jerusalem and their homes destroyed, and then they're sent into exile, and many of them were born in a foreign country and have grown up singing the songs of their homeland, hearing the stories of their homeland, and how, because of the disobedience of their fathers and grandfathers, they were punished and sent into exile. Now they're returning and attempting to rebuild, and their whole lifestyle, their whole Habit, their whole mood is shaped by that sense of loss, of being under the curse and punishment and wrath of God and having experienced his judgment. And in Zechariah's prophecy here in chapter 8, he calls them to look instead at God's great goodness and to instead of living their lives oriented around and responding to the devastation and the loss that they've experienced, to instead respond the goodness of God, to let His goodness lead the way. And so what we see in Zechariah chapter 8 is an answer to the question, what happens when God's goodness leads the way? And we will see that when God's goodness leads the way, it challenges our expectations. It ignites our efforts and it orients our emotions. The first thing, when God's goodness leads the way, it challenges our expectations This chapter begins with a threefold repetition of the word jealous. In chapter 2, thus says the Lord of hosts, I am jealous for Zion with a great jealousy, and I am jealous for her with great wrath. He is repeating actually something from chapter 1 where the the Lord in response to the lament of God, don't you care? Are you not going to punish the nations that afflicted us and that hurt us? Are you just going to leave us in this horrible state? And God says, no, listen, I am jealous for you. You know, we're used to jealousy being a bad thing because we equate it with envy, wanting what you can't have or wanting what doesn't belong to you. But jealousy can also be a good thing. The Lord in Exodus 34 says His name is jealous because that's His disposition towards us. Jealousy, in its proper understanding, is a fierce and powerful feeling for and protection of something that belongs to you. If you want to know what it looks like in its rawest form, just take a toy away from a toddler. A toy that belongs to them. What will they do to get that back? That fierceness, that, that desire to protect and keep what belongs to me. Now take that raw emotion and, and perceive it as a holy and unselfish movement of an all-powerful God. And you begin to understand what God means when he says he's jealous for us. And I said unselfish Because while a toddler's jealousy is born out of, I want it, it's me, it's mine, it's a selfish action, the jealousy of God is not about what 
what he desires. Yes, he desires, but it's also about what's best for us. The jealousy of God is about what's good for us. In John chapter 10, Jesus says, I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they might have life and have it abundantly. Only in Jesus and is there abundance, is there the life and every good thing that we desire, and he knows that for us. And so when he sees us, sees our hearts being tempted away, sees our loyalty being dragged away by something else, he's jealous for our sake because we belong to him and he wants us back. That's the goodness of God leading the way. And look what comes of it in verse 3 and 4. 3, 4, and 5. Thus says the Lord, I've returned to Zion and I will dwell in the midst of Jerusalem. Jerusalem shall be again called the faithful city and the mountain of the Lord of hosts, the holy mountain. Thus says the Lord of hosts, old men and old women shall again sit in the streets of Jerusalem, each with staff in hand because of great age. And the streets of the city shall be full of boys and girls playing in its streets. Two things that we see there. Number one, God will be present which is significant because at the time of the exile, when they had to leave Jerusalem, the presence of God visibly left the temple in a way that they could see and understand that God had turned his back on them because they had broken faith with him. And he says, no, that time of broken relationship is over. And God initiates his return. He says, I'm going to be with you again. But then he says, the streets will be filled with old people and with children at play. Now understand the audience of this prophecy very likely did not have any old people or any young children among them because they had just returned from exile in a foreign land and they had made an arduous, difficult three-month journey, mostly on foot, through desert and dangerous territories. And their goal as they returned, they weren't coming back to, uh, you know, Holiday Inn. They were coming back to devastated land. They had to begin from day one to rebuild houses and to fortify their city and to be on guard. And it was difficult and it was dangerous. And it was hard for them to imagine that someday that life would be so easy and so normal that people would live to an old age and be able to just sit on the streets and, and, and sit there with their canes and watch the kids playing in the streets. This generation had never seen that. And Zechariah says, this is what it's going to be. This is what God says he's going to do. In verse 6, thus says the Lord of hosts, if it's marvelous in the sight of the remnant of this people in those days, should it be marvelous in my sight, declares the Lord of hosts. Now, I don't often pick on the translation because I'm, I'm not a great Hebrew scholar, but I really don't think the, the word marvelous hits at what Zechariah is saying here. Because that word marvelous can also, and at other times, is also translated as unbelievable impossible to imagine, too hard, inconceivable if you're a Princess Bride fan. You know, it's the same word that's translated in, in Jeremiah 32, 27 as too hard. Behold, I am the Lord, the God of all flesh. Is anything marvelous for me? Is anything too hard for me? And it's a rhetorical question. The answer is no, no, nothing's too hard for God. And that's what Zechariah is saying to the people. If you think it's, it's impossible, it's inconceivable, it's unimaginable, is it really unimaginable for God? Is it something that he can't do and can't think of and can't accomplish? No, it's not. 
And so what God is saying, look, I'm so passionately jealous for you that I'm going to blow all your expectations out of the water. I am going to transform what you think is possible. In your mind, this can't happen, what I'm saying is going to be. But God knows what is possible because God determines what's possible. God is challenging the expectations of his people because we take our idea of what God can and will do and we just shrink it into a box that is bound by, by what we imagine God is capable of or, more often than not, what God is willing to do. Sure, we'll give lip service to, yeah, God can do anything. He's capable of anything. But you know what? I don't think he will. That's really where our heart struggles. I know God could change this person's heart and bring them to faith, but I don't think he's going to do that. I know God is able to strengthen me so that this habit, this addiction no longer has power in my life, but it's probably not going to happen. Don't let your expectations of God be limited by your imagination by what you think God can do. He is not that small of a God. The only boundaries around him are what he has said he is going to do. And so we get that from his word. We read his word, we find out what he has promised, and then we let that be the boundaries of what we expect from God. And more often than not, those boundaries are way beyond the limitations that we have set. Paul tells the Ephesian believers that the love of God for us surpasses knowledge. We can't even understand how great his love for us is. And then he goes on in Ephesians 3 verse 20 to praise God as him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think. God is able to do more than you can imagine him doing and certainly more than, than you can ask of him. And so study his word and learn what he has said he will do. What is his plan for his people? What is his plan for you? His plan, according to scripture, is to conform you into the image of Jesus, to make you like Jesus. Does that sound crazy? Not to God. His plan is to equip all of you, all of his children, for service and for ministry, to not just be a hearer of the word and not be a spectator in the church on Sunday morning, but to be actively involved in all that he's doing in his kingdom. Does that sound unreasonable and like too much? Not for God. He challenges our expectations, but we, to see that, we have to look ahead and see that his goodness is leading the way. See what good things he has promised and planned. And then let your expectations follow that. The next thing we see that happens as God's goodness goes before us and leads the way is that it ignites our efforts. Verse 9, thus says the Lord of hosts, let your hands be strong. Now in Zechariah's case, for his audience, that wasn't meant to be a figure of speech. Uh, they were physically rebuilding a ruined city, ruined walls, ruined temple. They were doing hard labor, but not just that, not just getting physically tired. They were being threatened by other, by bandits and by other nations, by those who uh, did not want them to succeed. And they were demoralized. And so discouraged and physically weary. And Zechariah gives the word of the Lord to let your hands be strong. And then what I like here is the motivation for that. The motivation is not, you should be ashamed not to be working hard. 
Or the motivation is not, hey, what's going to happen if we don't do this? It's going to be bad. They're going to come in. They're going to, it's going to be horrible. No, the motivation is this, verses 12 and 13. Let your hands be strong, for there will be a sowing of peace. The vine shall give its fruit. The ground shall give its produce. The heavens shall give their due. And I will cause the remnant of this people to possess all these things. And as you have been a byword of cursing among the nations, O house of Judah, and house of Israel, now I'm going to save you. So will I save you. And you shall be a blessing. Fear not. Let your hands be strong. Again, it's the goodness of God going first, leading the way, and then their efforts respond to that. God says, look, here's what's going to happen. I'm planning peace. I'm promising you a harvest. I'm going to overturn your bad reputation, and I'm going to make you a blessing. Look at that again. I'm going to make you a blessing. This is not some self-focused, I'm going to give you a great harvest and make you secure and prosperous so that you can sit there happy. No, God has a purpose for why he blesses us, and it's to make us a blessing. This is an intentional echo of God's promise to Abraham in Genesis 12. When the Lord said to Abram, go from your country, your kindred, your father's house, to the land that I will show you, and I will make make of you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. When God blesses us, there's two factors at play. One is that His blessing comes before our response. And number two, His blessing has a purpose. It is other-centered. It is given that we may give. There's a goal in mind. You know, what is it that that tends to keep us from living other-centered? What is it that tends to keep us from wanting to be a blessing to others? Now, initially we might think, well, it's selfishness. We're we're self-centered. I don't think that's true in a malicious way for most people. I think more often than not, the deeper thing is a fear, a self-preservation. How am I going to help others and bless others and give my time and my effort and my money and whatever to others? Uh, Who's going to take care of me? Who's going to meet my needs. It reminds me of a um, you know, story in my own household where um, leading up to a special event, uh, one, of the, one of the kids in my family was saving up their money because they really wanted something. There was something they really wanted and they were saving and saving and saving. And the question is, well, don't you want to like, you know, buy a birthday present for your sister? Don't you want to like, you know, not be keeping this all to yourself? But then when he overheard mommy and daddy talking about the present they'd already bought for him, which was exactly what he was saving up for, suddenly he was very eager to spend his money on his friends and his sisters. He didn't need it anymore because mom and dad had already taken care of what he wanted. Now that's a childish example, but I think it reflects what actually goes on in our hearts. We're so worried about taking care of ourselves, failing to realize that God's goodness has already led the way and has promised that you will lack nothing, that you will have all you need, that your emotional energy that you're trying to save up and conserve and so you don't want to go deal with people who are broken and hurting and needy, God has promised He is there for you. He is going to supply what you need. That when the offering plate comes around and you're like, "Eh, I don't know, I don't know. No, giving is an act of faith. That the God who has provided will provide. 
the call to bless others with giving, with serving, with all that we do, begins with, is ignited by the promise of God that He will supply all you need. Let's look at the, in the heart of this chapter, in verse 14. Thus says the Lord of hosts, As I propose to bring disaster to you when your fathers provoked me to wrath, and I did not relent, says the Lord of hosts. So again have I proposed in these days to bring good to Jerusalem and to the house of Judah. Fear not. So God says, look, 70 years ago when Israel sinned and I warned them and I warned them and I warned them and they didn't repent, I was at that point determined, 100% determined to punish and nobody could stop me. I was fully committed and look what happened. I carried it out. But now... I am just as fully committed to blessing my people. I am as committed to doing good now as I was to punishing them then. No one can stop me. No one can turn my hand. And then it goes into how we respond to that. Look what follows verse 16. Therefore, because of that, because of my commitment to bless, these are the things that you should do. Speak the truth to one another. Render in your gates judgments that are true and make for peace. Do not devise evil in your hearts against one another. Love no false oath, for all these things I hate, declares the Lord. The obedience that God's calling for doesn't work like this. Here's all the things you should do so that I will be committed to bless you. It is instead, see how committed I am to your good? See how committed I am, how much I've promised to take care of you? Now, how do you react to that like this? The obedience of God's people is a response, it's a living out of the gospel, the good news of God's commitment. And so our commitment to compassion for the needy, our commitment to protecting and preserving life, our commitment to opposing racial injustice, our commitment to resisting oppression, our commitment to seeking peace in personal relationships, our commitment to sacrificing for the sake of others, our commitment to detaching our hearts from possessions, it begins with and it's motivated by the good that God has already done for us. And it's a response to that because God's goodness leads the way. God is 100% committed to giving us the ending that we crave and desire, the blessing, the goodness, and that should light a fire under us. It should ignite our efforts to live for others. Finally, as, as the goodness of God leads the way, it challenges our expectations, it ignites our efforts, and the last thing we see is it orients our emotions. Look at verse 18 and 19. The word of the Lord of hosts came to me, saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the fast of the fourth month and the fast of the fifth and the fast of the seventh and the fast of the tenth shall be to the house of Judah seasons of joy and gladness and cheerful feasts. Therefore, love truth and peace. If you were here last Sunday when we looked at the previous chapter, we saw this, this idea of fasting to Zechariah's day was based around the destruction of the temple of Jerusalem. And they didn't just have one fast, they had four fasts every year for the past 60 years. In fact, the entire lifetime of most of the people that Zechariah is talking to. And each of those fasts commemorated an event in the destruction of Jerusalem, the, the day that the wall was breached, the day that the armies broke through and destroyed the city, 
the day that the temple was burned to the ground, the day that the exiles were carried away and the city was emptied of life. The fourth, the fifth, the seventh, the tenth month. Four times a year, every year, their entire life has been oriented around their sin, their failure, the judgment of God, their sadness over what has been lost. That's what their emotions were oriented around, this perpetual fasting. And beyond that, as they looked at their current state, as they looked around them, they were vulnerable and weak and helpless. They had no army to defend them. They had no walls to protect them. They had no financial power if there was a bad month or a bad season. They were vulnerable and fearful. So the dominant emotions of the people of Zechariah's day were oriented around their, their vulnerable, deplorable present condition and their embarrassing and mournful past. It was feelings of sadness and feelings of fear. Let me ask you, around what do you orient your emotional life? Some of you are thinking, I don't have an emotional life. You do. Just come talk to me when your team loses. I'll tell you what you orient your emotional life around. Or come to me after the election when your party doesn't win. I'll tell you what you orient your emotional life around. Or tell me when you're arguing with your spouse. Or when your kids aren't doing what you think they should do. Or when they aren't walking with the Lord. Or when the market takes a dip and you're afraid to open up that envelope to see where your balance is at. Then I'll tell you what you orient your emotional life around. That's not how it's to be. You know, in Zechariah's day, their, their emotional life was oriented around their weakness and their vulnerability and their failures before the Lord. And then God says in verse 19, I'm going to change all that. And these fasts that have so typified you and have, and have steered your heart towards mourning and, and hopefully a little bit of repenting, but a lot of sadness and regret. In verse 19, he says, these are going to become seasons of joy and gladness and cheerful feasts. I'm going to change your fasting into feasting, your mourning into joy, your ashes into beauty. When God's goodness leads the way, it orients our emotions. It calls us to not be riding the roller coaster of my own success or how my day went or what's on the TV or, and, or the screen with the latest news. Sure, we can't help but emotionally respond to those things, and I'm not saying that's wrong. But the, the, the true north that pulls the compass of our emotions again and again back to that direction, what is that? What what keeps pulling our hearts focus back? It ought to be what God has promised to do. There's a song, a, a praise song in Chinese that um, once I learned to speak enough Chinese, I understood why my Chinese brothers and sisters would cry whenever we would sing this song in worship. And it's a very simple song. It's four lines long. and I'm not going to sing it. Don't worry. Um, but I will give you an approximate translation. It says, um, you know, it doesn't matter whether you're on the highest mountains. It doesn't matter whether you're in the deepest valleys. Wherever you're at, you can know that God has a plan because the sun is always above the clouds. Even though you look up and the rain is falling on your face, 
The sun is above the clouds, and that will never change. It sounds a lot better in Chinese. But man, is that song meaningful? When you are struggling, when, when you are in the valley and you look up and the rain is falling on your face and you can't see the sun above the clouds, to sing and be reminded that it's still there. And how easily we allow our emotional life to be oriented around the rain that is falling and forget that it can't erase the sun that is always above the clouds. And so when God's goodness leads the way, He promises He promises things that orient our emotions around what will not change and what always gives us hope and joy. The psalmist knew this. In Psalm 43, as the psalmist is struggling with his own emotional turmoil, he says, why are you cast down, O my soul? And why so in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise Him, my salvation and my God. The psalmist is saying, look, I... Things are bad right now, and I feel bad, and I, it makes sense that I would feel bad, but where my emotions need to be oriented is to the God who does not change, for I will again praise Him. He's worthy of my hope. Believer, God has placed before you His goodness, and He calls you to fix your eyes on that, to let your heart be oriented towards that. I love that the author of Hebrews sets forth Jesus both as the object of our fixation, but also the example of that heart's fixation in Hebrews chapter 12. Since we're surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and every sin which clings so closely. Let us run with endurance the race that's set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith. So first of all, we're looking to Jesus, but also we see in him the example who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Jesus, facing crucifixion, fixed his eyes not on the circumstances immediately in front of him and not what was going on around him, but on the joy set before him. And we are called to do the same, fixing our eyes and orienting our hopes around Jesus. One of my favorite Stories and correspondences from history is from the Civil War. Uh, I'm, many of you know that I grew up, I was born in Pittsburgh, but I grew up on the peninsula, Hampton Roads area of Virginia. And, and during the Civil War, General McClellan of the Union Army came in with vastly superior forces into the peninsula and then just did nothing. He vastly outnumbered in numbers of soldiers, in force of artillery, in strategic advantage, had everything he needed to march right at the peninsula and into Richmond and, uh, and probably end the war. But McClellan was scared. And so he wrote letter after letter to Abraham Lincoln saying, please send me more. Send me more. I can't do it. We're not ready yet. We don't have enough. And finally, Lincoln got sick of it. <laughs> and sent him a letter. It was actually a very tender, very gracious letter on April 9th, 1862, detailing the numbers of troops that had been sent compared to the numbers of troops that were in, in between them and Richmond and the vast amounts of artillery that, that they had at their disposal and their strategic advantage. And he concludes his letter by saying this, Lincoln writing to General McClellan, I beg to assure you that I have never written you or spoken to you in greater kindness of feeling than right now. Nor have I ever written you with a fuller purpose to sustain you 
as far as in my most anxious judgment I consistently can. But you must act. Let me translate that. I've given you everything you need. I promise I'm going to keep giving you everything you need. You have to do something about it. You have to respond to my goodness. Now, sadly for McClellan, it didn't end well. He didn't act and eventually got replaced. But by then it was too late. But that's neither here nor there because your God speaks to you with greater affection than that, with more staggering promises and provision than that, but with the same idea that he has already abundantly supplied you with all you need and more. And he promises to continue that supply as long as you need it. You have only to act. Let his goodness lead the way. His goodness goes first. It sets the stage. And we respond. The phrase you'll hear at this church a lot is living out the gospel together. And that's what I'm talking about. The gospel is the good news of what God and his goodness has done and will do for you. We live in response to that. We live lives that reflect those promises and that goodness so that we as his people will testify how great, how great is the goodness of God towards us. And because his goodness is so great, we may confess together as we'll sing in a moment, all must be well. Let's thank the Lord for his goodness today. We praise you, Heavenly Father, for your unending goodness for your people. And though we are tempted to to let other things lead the way, to let other voices whisper in our ears or shout in our faces until we follow the way they think we should go, your goodness leads the way. And as we follow, we are so immensely blessed and made able to be a blessing to others. Heavenly Father, would you teach us to to let our minds, our expectations, be challenged by who you are and what you can do. Let our wills, our efforts be put in your service, inspired and ignited by your goodness. And let our emotions, our hearts, be oriented around your goodness for us that will not change and will not end. Indeed, we expect a bright tomorrow. All must be well. We thank you for this promise. According to the will and in the name of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.